As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hi, this is Brian Polson, host of Open Record. Throughout September, we are revisiting some of our favorite podcast episodes for the past three years. This week, a tough but important topic we face every day in the news business, death. How we encounter it, how we report it, and why the words we use matter. As we continue to work on new material for the future, please enjoy this encore presentation of Open Record, Death and Dying. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. We're investigative reporters breaking down the big stories, what it took to get them, taking you behind the scenes. It's the stuff we couldn't tell you on TV. On this episode, something we've never done, a live recording of a brutally honest conversation about one of the toughest parts of this job. Hello, everyone. I'm Jenna Sachs here with Amanda St. Hilaire. Hello. And Brian Polson. Hi. We're doing something different for this episode of Open Record. It started a few weeks ago when we got an email asking if we would speak to a group of students at the Milwaukee School of Engineering. That part's not unusual. We get speaking requests all the time. But this was for the class Death and Dying. And boy, is death and dying something we encounter repeatedly as journalists. So we asked MSOE if we could actually record this conversation and turn it into an on-the-road episode of the podcast. And they said yes. And we just came back from that recording. Great questions from the students. We've never really done anything like that before. And I think we all walked away having learned something just from that conversation and having to pick apart the stuff that we carry with us each day. I thought it was, frankly, the most eye-opening thing to me was just the fact that we could sit and talk about it forever because you don't necessarily realize how much we encounter and talk about death and dying and you, until you start talking about our jobs and go, wow, we cover a lot of death and grieving and, and encountering people at the worst moments of their lives. Right. And in our discussion, we talked about how we handle these stories, what we've seen people experiencing in their own lives and how it has affected us, uh, which I think you're right. It's not something we stop to think about all that often, but it's it's definitely something we encounter regularly, not something we really thought we would back in journalism school. I, I feel like anyone who watches the news is a consumer of news. This is a great topic, an interesting uh, topic to listen to. I imagine you probably have your own questions that you, as you listen, but as, as we said, the students had some great ones too. And this is a really interesting class because they're taking apart everything. So they're learning, how do we speak about death? Why does that matter? What are the, the different parts of our society where we're encountering death and we don't even realize it? So it made me want to take the class hearing what they're going through and what they're learning here. And I think we're just grateful that we could be a part of that. With that, here's our conversation with MSOE students about death and dying. Welcome, everyone. Today, we are very excited to have with us three of the Fox 6 investigators. So we have Jenna Sachs, Brian Polson, 
and Amanda St. Hilaire here to talk about death in the media. So they will introduce themselves, talk a little bit about their experiences, um, and then a little bit later on you'll be able to ask questions. Uh, just know when you come up to ask questions, you got to come over and use the microphone. So. All right. Okay. Thank you. I'm Brian Polson. I'm an investigative reporter here, and we're just gonna we're gonna each introduce ourselves to you, and share an experience that we've had, uh, which we have a lot of experiences in the news business with death and dying. It's unfortunately a reality of the news business is that we encounter it frequently, um, and 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 I think we each have a little different perspective that we're gonna present because there are a lot of ways that we connect with death and dying. And, and and for me, I've been in the news business now for more than 20 something years. I actually got a call from a fundraiser from my university the other day and, and the person on the phone said, you, you've you been in the news business 23 years, you must be ready to retire. <laughs> and uh, no, unfortunately no. Um, but I think back to my early days, I was in radio before I got into television and this was the 1990s, early 90s, and it was before the internet. So um, we got a lot of our news from wire services that were printed out on dot matrix dot matrix printers. I don't, do you guys know what a dot matrix printer is? Have you ever seen the kind of like the, the stacks of paper that have like the uh, edges with the holes on them? It was so for the spools to spit the paper out and they would print and they made really loud noises like this. The newsroom all night long had this buzzing sound of the printers printing things out. And one of the wires we got was from Missouri Net which was the Missouri State Highway Patrol would send out crash reports. And when they responded to an accident scene, they would give a summary, maybe a paragraph or two of what happened, where it was, and then if there were any injuries, they would name the individuals, which vehicle they were in, vehicle one or two. And at the end, there was a flag, a three-letter flag of the severity of their injuries. M-I-N for minor, M-E-D for medium, S-E-R for serious, F-A-T for fatal. I was young, I was 18, 19 years old, my first job in the news business, and I worked overnights. And usually the news was pretty boring, it was a small town. And so I would watch those wires for something big to come across. And when they started printing and there was a bigger thing with maybe more than a couple of paragraphs and there were several people injured or, or even killed, I would watch with anticipation, almost excitement. And one night I still remember the printer was spitting out a really long report with three fatals, three fatalities, six or seven serious injuries, a couple of moderate injuries, and and a, and a few minor. And it was a, a crash of a bus, like a 15-passenger van uh, had rolled over on the highway um, in a crash with another vehicle, maybe even a third vehicle involved. And what I remember thinking back now is I got so excited and thought, yes, we've got it. It's a huge story. And I was young and I was disconnected because I was just in a radio studio. I didn't have to see or meet any of these people. I didn't have to see the anguish of their family members when they got the phone calls or when they arrived at the scene. And it wasn't really until later in my career, especially when I got into television, did a lot more face-to-face -face contact with people going through this stuff that I realized how wrong it was that I was rooting for death on the job because it made my story more interesting as though somehow that mattered in comparison to what they were going through. So that's really what stands out to me is how in the news business, especially when you're not face-to-face -face with it, it's easy to be disconnected and think of the more death, the bigger the story, and, and almost be rooting for that. It's, it's a sort of a perverse thing until you really start to get to know the people you're covering uh, and realize that, no, these are real lives and real families. 
Um, Jenna. Sure. Um, my name is Jenna Sachs. Uh, I started at Fox 6 in January of 2011, and I did general assignment reporting for six years, which is basically the reporting on the day of news. So that was a lot of crime. It was a lot of accidents, politics, daily events. And so during that time, it really was a crash course in death and dying. I covered it every week, sometimes several times a week. Uh, I've moved into a different role for the last three years. I do consumer investigations now, so when I deal with death, it might be trying to help a widow get her husband's ambulance ride uh, covered by the insurance company. So I don't deal with it as much as I used to, and in some ways I'm grateful because it was very draining. Um, I remember one of my first years it probably was within my first year I went to a crime scene. It was a, I think it was an, a, a murder-suicide in Milwaukee. I've been to more crime scenes than I could count, probably hundreds. I've seen many, many grieving families. And this stood out in my memory because we were standing beyond the police tape and a car pulled up and a teenage boy got out. And three feet from my face, someone who might have been an aunt, it might have been a neighbor, I don't know, walked up to him and said, boy, your parents are dead. And to see that, that moment in front of your face, that's the worst moment of that kid's life. I witnessed it. It might be the most meaningful, um, significant moment of his life, very life-altering, and it happened right in front of my face. I kind of had to avert my eyes because it was so painful to watch a kid learned that both of his parents were dead and in such a callous way. So I always try to remember that when I go to these scenes because it reminds me that even if I don't see the moment someone learned that these people died, it is, it is a horrible thing and someone somewhere is dealing with a horrible tragedy. So I saw many incidents like that from then on, but that one really stuck out in my memory because it was the first time I had seen that and uh, I think it framed a lot of how I approached these situations moving forward and the sensitivity I had when I approached those families because it may seem like just an overnight shooting on the news, a fatality, it might be 30 seconds of your newscast, but for someone, the world ended that day and that's something we have to remember. I think a lot of us have those flashpoint memories that really shape us. So my name's Amanda St. Hilaire. I have been in broadcast journalism for the last eight years. I've been doing investigative reporting for the last, exclusively for the last four or five years or so. But when I started in broadcast, I had graduated from college a semester early. I went out to Toledo, Ohio for my first job. And my first story involving, directly involving death was three months on the job. So I was 21 years old. I got a call that my job that day was to be on campus at one of the public universities because three girls exactly my age, three young women who were seniors in college were on their way to the airport for spring break. There was a driver driving the wrong way down the highway. To this day, no one knows why or what happened because she she died in this. There were two cars of sorority sisters going to the airport. The first car swerved and missed the wrong way driver. The second car had no chance. And three students died uh, instantly. So my job was to be on campus to get the community reaction. So at this point, of course, 
you know, I'm thinking these are people my age. It, it affects you in that way because you you can relate, but you can't, right? So I had never lost anyone in that sense, but I could easily put myself in other people's shoes. But you can't deal with those feelings right at the moment. You can't go in a corner and cry. You can't sit there and process your own emotions because, A, the story isn't about you and you can't make it about you. But, B, you your job is to document this and to give people a chance to participate in the telling of the story. So being on campus all day, there was such a mix of reactions. Some people were very eager to speak about their friends because they wanted to have say in the pictures that were shown, in the way that these young women were remembered. They wanted people to know that one was a swimmer and one was in choir and, you know, this one had a smile that would light up the room and they, they, it was cathartic almost. Some other people, these were very private moments of grief. So you're standing there covering the service and you're debating, do I show this moment where this person just breaks down sobbing? It captures what's happening, but this is someone experiencing something really profound and how do they feel about that? And what's the impact of capturing that? Um, some people were not happy that I was there. I think that day I got called a vulture. I got screamed at. Uh, there was one person who, because I looked so young, because I was young, called our station and accused them of recruiting people to go in and pretend to be students in order to get the story. So there, there was a lot that was going on, and you know, you have to ha be tapped into your emotions enough to accurately and with emotion tell the story, but you have to be separated from them enough in order to be able to do your job. So I remember going home, and because everything had kind of had to be set aside during that day, I went home and the first thing I did was I threw up. Just everything kind of came to the surface, and that really, uh, like Jenna said, framed uh, a lot of the ways I approach situations. And even now I look back from a different perspective because I'm a mother now, and I think about down the road, if that were my daughter, how would I want things to be handled? And so even from a different perspective now, I think there were some things I would have done differently. And so we never really stop second-guessing ourselves or going over everything we did that day to say, did we do the right thing? Did we do the ethical thing? And there isn't always an easy answer to that. Well, I think that's a good segue into... Uh, when we were invited here by your professor, she, she mentioned something. She used a term that has long been associated with the news business, and I think especially the television news business. If it bleeds, it leads. Have you anybody heard that phrase before? Mm -hmm. If it bleeds, okay, raise your hand. If it bleeds, it leads. It's an old saying that essentially means if it's something, if there's a, uh, an, an event that involves blood or guts or gore or death, lead the newscast with it because that's the way to get ratings. That's a way to get people to watch. And I was thinking about bringing that up here because... As, as I was thinking about that, I just happened to Google, if it bleeds, it leads. I was curious what would come up. And sure enough, one of the top hits was from, of all things, an article or column, I'm not sure which, in Psychology Today. Really interesting that that's what I would find. And here's what it says. News is a money-making industry, one that doesn't always make the goal to report the facts accurately. Before we've even gotten any further, I read that. I showed it to Amanda. And our first thought is, are you kidding? What kind of assumption is that? Of course our goal is to report the facts accurately, but that's the perception. 
Gone are the days of tuning in to be informed straightforwardly about local and national issues. In truth, watching the news can be a psychologically risky pursuit, which could undermine your mental and physical health. Now, I won't argue with that. The next one. Fear-based news stories prey on the anxieties we all have and then hold us hostage. Uh, it's actually the following paragraph that I really wanted to zero in on. In previous decades, the journalistic mission was to report the news as it actually happened with fairness, balance, and integrity. However, capitalistic motives associated with journalism have forced much of today's television news to look to the spectacular, the stirring, and the controversial as news stories. It's no longer a race to break the story first or get the facts right. Instead, it's to acquire good ratings in order to get advertisers so that profits soar. And, and that's when they bring up the term, it bleeds, it leads. I bring that up because I think the common belief is that we cover death and dying because our bosses say, sell more papers, sell more ads, get out there and cover the dead people. And I've worked in this news business for a long time and never once have I had a boss who sent me to a story because it was going to get more ratings or it was going to get more viewers? I do think there's a legitimate debate and discussion to have, though, over is there truth to if it bleeds, it leads? I don't think the motives that are associated with it are just simply because that's what gets ratings. It might be true in some cases. But the question is, why do we do it? Why do we cover so much crime and death? And I think that's something... It's certainly open for discussion. Jenna and I were talking it on the way down here and talking about it on the way right. down Right. Well, I think there's a balance that's going on in the newsroom between information that the community needs to know, information that's breaking, and we're always trying to tell what's happening immediately, as fast as we can. We're trying to get on air with the latest information. So a lot of times that leads to a breaking news culture where we've always got something big and something new on the newscast. But I will tell you, if you took a poll of TV reporters in Milwaukee, I'm I think it's fair to say most would say they would rather not cover so much, and maybe they do think we cover too much violence. But I will tell you, in certain segments of our community where there are more violent incidents, they expect those stories to be on the news. They rely on us to have that information for them so they can find out what happened on the next block over. But yeah, we could have a big debate about whether folks in Muskego need to hear about that every day. And another point is a lot of times in the newsrooms, if we don't cover something, people will call us and say, why wasn't the death of my loved one as important as the one you're reporting on right now? So I understand why people don't want to see so much violence on the news. We do feel a need to always be covering the latest and you know, the happenings of our city. But I think you could make an argument. Maybe sometimes we do it too much. And I'll tell you, the, the reporters would much rather do the story they pitched at the meeting that had a happy ending um, than go knock on the door of someone, which I'm sure we'll talk about later what that um, is like. But I think, I think there's some truth to that perception because if you go on our website and you click on a story 10,000 times and it's about a murder, we're probably going to do a follow-up story on that murder because it shows there's interest there. This is what our community wants to know more about. So if, if you're interested in it, we're probably going to follow up on it and do more on it. So if you're watching our shows and you're tuning in for those stories, well, you seemed interested in this. Maybe we should keep covering those incidents. You're interested in them. So it's, it's hard to figure out which direction to go. We're not the producers. We don't decide the order of our newscasts and what stories are on. Uh, we just do the assignments we're given. But, I mean, I understand the perception. Well, and we are in a unique position where because we do investigative work because we work on special projects the three of us are working on more long-term stories so whenever we are currently 
dealing with death or dying, we have the luxury of being able to take a step back. What's the bigger issue here? We can think about the issue for several days, several weeks, run it by other people. It's different than the day-to-day -day news operation. And it is that, that tough balance of what do people want versus what people need. A lot of people will say, I want, will say, I want to see positive stories. When you look at what people click on and what they are searching on their computers whenever the Google search results come out, mm -hmm. it usually paints a different picture. And now with social media and with algorithms, sometimes too, it's very easy to get in a bit of a silo mm -hmm. where you might think, oh, they're only covering this, this, and this, but it's because you're only seeing what the algorithm is showing and it's showing what other people are clicking on and then there's all this other content that's getting pushed out but isn't getting seen and it just it becomes a little bit of a cycle. And as we were on the way down here, I have a little bit of a different perspective to toss into this, which is but before I before I answer that, I'm I'm going to point out that when we I don't know if you guys got this in journalism school, when I was in journalism school, we talked about what is news? What makes something a news story? And there are some basic things like is it timely? If it happened two years ago, that's not necessarily news unless there's a new development. Is it local? Proximity is a big factor. Did it happen here or did it happen way over there? If it happened in LA today, I really don't care unless it's important enough for us to talk about here. And that leads us to another one, impact. What is the impact? How big of an impact? How many people are impacted? Does it impact one person? Does it affect thousands and thousands of people? So for instance, if there's a disease outbreak that could affect all of us, that's timely, it's local, and it's hugely impactful. If there was a murder in a particular neighborhood, there's huge impact on that family, on that neighborhood. Does it necessarily impact me in, you know, another community 30 or 40 miles away? Well, not necessarily. Am I interested? Maybe. Conflict is another factor. If there's conflict, well, murder certainly involves conflict. Um, conflict is definitely newsworthy. There's a lot of these factors that we consider. It is something, a news story. But I think, having been in this business a long time, and this is a criticism of my industry, so you know, for all the news bosses listening, I'm sorry, it's just my observation in all these years of doing it, I think we do a lot of crime coverage because it's easy. Because we have scanners, and we hear what's going on. Lights and sirens, police are going that way, we should go too. That's a ready-made, timely, breaking news story. And we love to say we're covering breaking news. Breaking, breaking. How many times have you seen breaking news? Does breaking news, the phrase, even mean anything to you anymore? When you hear something's breaking news, do you get all excited? Or do you figure, that's I just another... I see some shoulder shrugs. It's just a phrase that's used. But we, it's easy, so we go to it. Um, and the stuff that we do as investigative reporters is not necessarily easy because oftentimes it involves research. It involves the time to get a hold of the right people to try to talk them into telling their stories, talk them into telling their stories on camera, getting the documents that support what they're saying or what we want to know. So doing impactful journalism is hard. And it's, but, but covering crime and press releases is something we have to do. It's not only easy, it is still also something we have to do. We have a responsibility to cover it. Right. But on that note, uh, it's not always easy for the reporter who's going to the scene. Correct. It yes. is when you initially get there and you're getting on air quick and you need to tell people what's going on. You can do that based on observation. The process of pursuing the story after that is pretty challenging. Yeah, and to be clear, I mean easy in terms of 
a story selection. The yeah. story comes to you. We heard it on the scanner. We have a location. It's happening now. Go. Right. And and we know it's something that's there's conflict involved because there was some sort of violence. So we go. But yeah, the that's a good segue for you right. to talk about. For the reporter going to cover the story, it's anything but easy. Right. Because the fact is, it's coming out now that a lot of journalists, not just the ones in war zones, but covering day-to-day local news, have PTSD because you're seeing so much. You're at those crime scenes. You're mm-hmm. seeing bodies. You're seeing the anguish of families. Right. I wouldn't go that far for myself, but I will say it. It did get difficult at certain points to keep covering stories because they were so draining. Uh, but I will talk about um, the knock on the door. I mentioned that earlier. It's really hard when you go to the house of someone who's just lost a loved one and find out if they want to contribute to the report you're putting on the air. I always felt I had an obligation to inform that family that I was doing a story about their son or their wife, and it was going to be on at this time. And I wanted to know if they wanted any input on what we said about that person and how the story was crafted. And I felt like it could be more painful for someone to turn on the news and see their loved one's face and think, that reporter didn't even contact me and ask me what I think about this. And that's kind of the mindset I took going into those situations. And people assume that they always slam the door in our face. And sometimes, yes, that does happen. We try to be respectful and we try to retreat as quickly as possible. But it also happens where people open the door and they say, thank you so much for coming. This person mattered to me and I want to tell you and everybody why this death matters and how it's impacting us. And sometimes they want us to learn something from it. I've covered horrible stories where a child has run into the street and been hit by a car and the mother just wants people to know, hey, this can happen. Watch out for your kids. I'm not saying anyone's to blame, but sometimes there's a, a lesson they want people to learn. So we sometimes they want you in and sometimes they don't. And I always approach the door. I usually said something like, uh, my name is Jenna Sachs. I'm with Fox 6 News. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I wanted you to know we're doing a report about your loved one. It's going to air at 9 and 10. If you would like to do an interview for that story, I would be grateful for the opportunity to speak with you about your loved one. Um, If you don't want to, absolutely, I understand, we'll leave. And if there's a picture of your loved one you would like us to use instead of something else someone else might provide, um, then we, we would love the opportunity to take that picture with us. And if they asked me to leave, I left right away. And if they wanted me to stay, then we would stay and talk for a while. And you never knew how it was gonna go. And in some places, they expect you to knock on the door, and most of the time, they'll let you in. It, it, you just try to, you just, you feel bad in those situations where people feel that you're a vulture and that you're enjoying this somehow, and all you want to do is, you know, expose yeah, it, yeah. you know, try to play to the dramatics of it. But I think when you're more human with someone, they're, they, they appreciate it, and to be honest, it leads to follow-up stories later on, too, if they say, you know what, I'm not ready to talk about it now, but I, I like the way you talk to me. Let's talk about it in a week or so. And If that happens, okay, great, but if it doesn't, at least you can feel like you've approached it in a respectful way. And to me, the words you used right there, Jenna, are so important because you'll notice nowhere in there is she trying to say, I understand what you're going through because mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest thing because you can – and I've seen people do this and it comes from a good place. You're trying to relate and you're trying to connect and it just, it it comes across as fake. It can do more harm and to be able to just say, I'm sorry, here's what's going on. And sometimes even acknowledge, 
I've never been there. I can't imagine what this is like, but I wanted to do this. But I, I think the way you phrase that is is so crucial because it you th- those conversations, if they're not done correctly, can do more harm. I do think there are instances, and, and certainly throughout the news business, there have probably been reporters who have approached people in not such a sensitive way, and that only adds to the impression of the industry as one of, uh, you know, of, of, of the industry of vultures. What also, I think, plays into that perception, uh, and, and it's understandable, is imagine you've just lost a loved one in some sort of newsworthy way, and Jenna approaches you, either knocks on the door or makes a phone call with all the respectful intent in the world, but then so does the reporter from Channel 12, and so does the reporter from Channel 4, and so does the reporter from CBS 58, and so does the reporter from the Journal Sentinel, it starts to feel, especially if you're someone who is not ready to talk, that's going to feel extremely invasive, and it just feels like media go away. So it's an understandable response to that, but individually, we each have a job to do and a responsibility to make that reach out, to make that approach. And as Jenna said, I think it's the best way to approach it is to say, and I think it's important, we're going to do a news story. It's about your loved one. You have a right to know. You have a right to know when it's going to be on the air, and if you want to have some input or another spokesperson for the family, we want to make that available to you. If you don't, that's okay, and we perfectly understand, and at that point, you go away. You don't keep calling. You don't keep hounding. The hard thing is there are times when people will say, well, I don't give you permission to do the story, and we're in a tough spot because when you're covering news, you're covering it not because someone's given you permission, but because it's happened in the public domain or because it's a story of public interest. So then you're at a point where someone is grieving, they don't want their loved one on the air, but you're doing something where you have to do that anyway, and that's a very difficult conversation to have. I do want to jump in and say, by the way, I know the microphone's way over there, so it might feel a little uncomfortable to stand up and walk over to it, but we welcome your questions. We'd love to actually get your questions. If you have any questions for us related to this topic, um, the microphone right behind behind your professor, and also uh, Lauren, if you have any questions, feel free to to send them, you know, shoot them our way here. I would say it's a good thing the microphone's not actually sitting in front of me because I'd be up there like <laughs> it, 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 putting my input in with your conversation. Yeah. I also learned something interesting from covering so many instances of death and dying, and it doesn't matter if it's a mass shooting, if it's a police shooting, if it was just something that happened on Locust Street. Uh, People deal with grief in all sorts of different ways. And I've seen people who were stunned. I've seen people who were broken down. I've seen people who were very confused. I once had a woman who was laughing uncontrollably. And it's interesting sometimes because we'll interview them. And I had a woman who was laughing throughout the interview because she couldn't process the emotions. I knew that from being there with her, that she couldn't she couldn't understand and handle what was happening in that moment. So we, we chose sound bites in a way that were sensitive to what she was going through. I didn't want her to come across as someone who didn't care in our interview. I think sometimes people might see an interview on the news and they'll say, that guy doesn't seem to care all that much that his loved one is is gone. And I think it's just important to note that everybody processes it differently and maybe we shouldn't jump to conclusions about how someone is responding in that moment because everybody reacts in a different way. And you you never know how you're going to react in that moment. I don't know what I would do. I'd probably be stunned. Um, and in denial. Well, and you said it changes over time, too, because there are some people who initially would want to talk to no one, um, maybe no one other than family, maybe no one other than law enforcement responding, or maybe no one at all. But because of what we do, 
if there is some sort of call for action or change or investigation to be done, oftentimes those people really do want to open up to us because telling their loved one's story, uh, as painful as it may be, might be the thing that prompts change so that the same thing doesn't happen to others. Maybe whether that's you know a story about drunk driving or a story about some other societal ill that could be fixed, people are willing to tell really painful stories. And sometimes that doesn't happen until weeks later, maybe months later, in some cases even years later. But I think it's not uncommon at all for us to interview people who've lost someone because they want change. And telling that story, they hope, is sort of that agent for change. I think of that story you did with the kid who choked on his lunch. Sure. Yeah, Which one was it, that? It was a, a, a young man, nine years old, who was in a Milwaukee public school summer day camp. And he choked on a stack of homemade pancakes that he brought for lunch. And it turned out there was no one in that cafeteria or no one working that day who'd been trained in CPR or the Heimlich Maneuver. And so the father, who was uh, still grieving many months later, uh, very, had a very hard time telling his son's story, but he and his wife felt so strongly that something more needed to be done. They want instructors, teachers, anyone who's at a camp like that or in school to be trained and knowledgeable in CPR. So he told a story that he probably didn't want anyone, or he didn't want to have to go through the process of telling to anyone, certainly not in front of a television camera, but he told that story because he wanted to affect change. And it did, in fact, get at least one state lawmaker involved in pushing toward legislation. That's still a process that's ongoing, but um, that, that's, I think we run across that all the time. Mm-hmm. Does anyone have any questions? If you have one, if you don't mind stepping over to the microphone and, and fire it out at us. We can handle tough questions. <laughs> don't be nervous. Um, we're learning about um, language in our class, so I kind of have two questions. The first one is, do you ever avoid the word like dead or death in favor of more euphemistic terms to be more sensitive depending on where you are I guess like whether you're on the scene or in the room or like yeah. passing away like he passed yeah away or like lost or gone I, like I don't think newscasts tend to shy away from the word die or death it, dep- it depends on how quickly we're going through a story or whether we have more time to invest in the storytelling side of it. If we're interviewing a family and it's a sensitive story that we're telling, um, we're trying to be sensitive to them, I think we use the the words like passed away or those phrases rather than saying dead or die. But I mean, it's very common to start a story in our newscast with a 13-year-old boy is dead today because of this. So Mm -hmm. what do you think? Well, I think sometimes using those words we think we're making other people comfortable, but if we're being really honest, it makes ourselves comfortable because saying something like death or died can feel uncomfortable to the person telling the story, but it's sometimes not uncomfortable for the family. I think in a lot of these situations, if you're dealing with day of news, reporters are going live, and in that case, it's it's not scripted. You have not written out in advance what you're going to say. You're not reading off of a teleprompter at the scene. So you will tend to use kind of fallback language. And we all have it, language that we are used to saying in our own conversations. And so that's where you'll hear a variety of language from different reporters, especially in live situations. I personally tend to avoid phrases like passed away. I I haven't found those to be comforting when I hear them in my own personal life, but I'll, I'll usually talk with the family and see what kind of language they prefer. 
especially when we're dealing with a, a victim scenario? Well, I think it also does depend, it's situation dependent. For instance, a news anchor at the news desk leading off a story says, you know, three people died today in a car crash, wherever. Um, that, that feels perfectly normal. And frankly, it's good broadcast writing. We talk a lot in broadcast about not using unnecessary words. Every word is gold. You only have so much time. Be direct. Don't use flowery language when you can say something that, that has very simple meaning. So they died, they were killed, um, is, is very direct. If you're live and the family of that person who died is standing behind you watching, um, maybe you feel a little more compelled to soften the way you describe it. You don't want to be so hard-edged. And it might also depend on if you're telling a story where there's a little more of a, a little more storytelling behind let's get to know the, the family or the person. You might use a little bit different language as you're setting up a piece as opposed to you know, a hard news story uh, about a, a, yeah, a, a crime that has just occurred. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Um, and then my other question is, I know we already touched on it a little bit on this questions for Jenna or all of you, but because Jenna had talked about uh, doing day of mm -hmm. and how that can sometimes be harder, um, death and dying can sometimes be a stigma and it's also can be really hard. Um, and so I guess my question is, how do you overcome those? Like whenever it gets really hard, how do you overcome it and persevere through and continue on with the story? Um, some days it was harder than others. I will say that after a while, you have to learn how to go home and hang up your Fox 6 jacket and try to put it back and out of your mind because it's just not a healthy headspace to live in all the time. It's not that I didn't care about those people when I was with them and I do care, but I can't live in that space all the time. And there were weeks where I felt like I just covered it every day because there were follow-up stories. Um, but it takes a toll. I will say after I had kids, I had a lot harder time going to stories where children died. I think my first week back from maternity leave, I got sent to a fire where an infant died. And then a couple weeks later, I was sent to uh, an incident where a toddler drowned in an above ground pool. And those were harder for me to separate because being a mom was so new and those emotions were so fresh for me that it was hard to separate the two um, compared to how it used to be. But I think, I, don't, I wouldn't say I have PTSD, but I think it's definitely changed me as a person. I think I'm a different person because of those experiences I've had. I value things uh, more than I maybe would have before. I'm also the kind of parent that's a little more paranoid than other people because someone might say, well, I don't know anyone who's had that experience happen to their child. And I'll think to myself, well, I know 10 people that's mm -hmm. happened to. And I know it makes the news because it's rare, but to me, it doesn't feel rare because I've sat in those living rooms and I've talked to those families. So I, I, I'm very nervous about the little things like getting my three kids into daycare in the morning, just getting them safely in the building without anybody running into the street. So I do have these worst case scenarios playing in my head a lot. Uh, sometimes I just tell myself, you know, it's, it's going to be okay, but it's, it's definitely shaped me, especially since I became a parent and I'm worried about keeping these three little people alive every day. You know the worst case scenario for every scenario. I, I do, and I've seen it, and it makes a, it makes a difference. It wasn't just something on the news and you read that story and you go, oh, how terrible. I actually sat there and I went through the photo albums with the family, and I, I know a lot about those people. So it, it, it is hard to separate, but at some point I did learn to hang up my jacket and try to just put it out of my head when I went home. I think police officers have to do something similar, mm -hmm. which yeah. they see much worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, guys. Mm -hmm. cool. um, I was just uh, wondering, so like 
you guys are very much exposed to death a lot and um you said you said how you have to separate that kind of like just because it's not healthy to be in that headspace all the time and i was wondering like how do you find in like say your personal life does that make you more comfortable like or you're more so used to talking about death like that in your personal life you find like other people are like whoa you're way too comfortable about this and the conversation the topic is for you it's so normal and then for pe people in your life yeah i think we're all very open in general because you have to be we're in a position where we are asking people tough questions direct questions jenna you say this all the time we are with people on probably the worst days and the worst moments of their lives and asking them questions about it through it so i think generally speaking and i can't speak for every journalist but i know for us we are all very we're very verbal people we work in tv news in general but we're all very open and i think we're connected with those emotions and we're able to share those and i know we share it in our own space and i'm sure our spouses would say that we talk about this stuff a lot too because sometimes the only way through it is to talk it out so that you can hang up your Fox 6 jacket, so that you can decompress. But I know other people who, the way they deal with it is to just not talk about it, not acknowledge it. Everybody's different, but the three of us, I think, are relatively open when it comes to those conversations. You know, I've done this a long time, and one thing that has stood out to me is people will often assume that I'm thinking about it a lot more than I am because they know what I've covered and they've seen what I've covered and they know I was right there and they'll ask me a lot of questions and really I think I'm sure this is true of police officers I'm sure it's true of EMTs emergency room physicians um, is that you do compartmentalize you you take it's not that it doesn't affect us and I'm a very empathetic person I mean I probably will cry watching Frozen 2 but <laughs> I, but so it's not that we don't feel, but sometimes you, you have to set aside what you're doing for your job and you go home and, and, and you think about it. You know, I, I sometimes I've come home from stories and just hug the kids a little harder, but you get back to your life routine and I think you try to keep the things separate. Um, you know, I, people probably ask me more about my stories than I volunteer to talk about because they want to know more. I go to a, a you know a, a party or a family gathering or something. Hey, tell me about that story I saw, and they want to know more. So it's it's not necessarily as though I'll walk in and just start, you know, blathering all the the details of the the graphic crime scene I was at. But but you're uh, but, not uncomfortable answering the question. No, certainly not. I mean, I think we that's what we do for a living. So we're more than happy to talk about it. Maybe more so than than most people. A common problem for I think any reporter who covers this stuff regularly is maybe we'll go to an office Christmas party for our spouse, and someone will say, Oh, what did you do this week? Or what did you do today? Wow. And sometimes you find a way around what you actually did or what you actually were talking about. And sometimes you, you share what you actually did and you realize that maybe you shouldn't have. You, you're trying to judge the company you're in and whether they seem like they would be open to hearing about what you actually were doing versus not and sometimes you find out too late <laughs> i'm also afraid people will be disappointed when they find out well what did you do this week i mostly looked at data in spreadsheets and that was, <laughs> yeah. and that was about now. yeah it's, it's not quite the same as right. spot news yeah but i think you find yourself constantly trying to filter what you say because it might be someone you don't know very well and sometimes you just lay it all out there and people i think people i often are very interested in hearing what we did on a daily basis but i think sometimes we share things so openly at the newsroom that Sometimes we share too much with strangers, and 
you know, then we learn later that maybe we shouldn't have said that mm -hmm. to, you know, your husband's boss or whatever. I could see a t-shirt that says like, I'm a journalist, I overshare. I this overshare, is <laughs> this yeah. is true. Thank you for yeah. the question. <laughs> Throughout working on these longer news articles, how have you seen the effect of uh, mental health on the victims or the loved ones and how have they dealt with it? Uh, along with how have you followed up to see if they're still doing okay for a follow-up since it's a little bit of longer term, you don't have to worry about just being there in the moment. I'm primarily interested in how like, just the, how the mental health repercussions there are for having a loved one's death kind of shown on media and kind of mm -hmm. having a burst of information for a long, a little while and then nothing for a long time. Well, we, we sometimes do cover anniversaries of events and we see people and how they've evolved in their grieving process over time because at the beginning it's very fresh. We go to so many vigils where there's a lot of crying. Everything is still very raw. And then over time there seems to be more of an acceptance of it. It's not as difficult for people to talk about. There was a case of a missing girl in Milwaukee, Alexis Patterson. Uh, that's a very famous missing child in Milwaukee. Over time, the events got smaller. People found it easier to talk about. Her parents weren't as emotional over time as they talked about it just because it became more of a part of their life and they were more accustomed to it. So I think it is interesting to follow up with people and sometimes people are doing much better than others. Some will still cry years out talking about it and some have a, an ability to process it in a different way. But you know, grief is all the time. It's just, just because you're not crying about it every time you talk about it doesn't mean that it, it's any less painful. I think people live with those experiences and carry them with them for years. And it's good for us to be reminded, maybe even just on the anniversary, that that family is still dealing with the fallout of losing their loved one years later. So it's a good reminder for us that even though our lives have moved on, theirs haven't. You go into their house and there's still pictures of that, that child everywhere, or maybe they haven't touched the bedroom yet. So. It's, it's interesting and it's a good reminder, I think, for us. There, there are certainly some people, too, who want us to be doing those follow-up stories. And sometimes there is a legitimate reason, a, a news hook that gives us a reason to do the follow-up beyond the anniversary. There might be some event or some change that they're calling for. Uh, I think of the, the drunk driving stories that I've recently worked on where there was one mother in particular who is determined to change the laws, and so she wants to keep seeing these follow-up stories. There are other times, though, where someone will reach out and say, you know, hey, uh, could, you, could you do this story or that about my loved one? Because they just want to keep, they want people to remember, and maybe there's not really a particularly newsworthy event connected to that, and, and you know, but you understand that they are, they don't want their loved one to be forgotten. They don't want their death to be forgotten. And sometimes the news coverage is a thing that sort of reminds everyone that, hey, this, this person still matters and still, still meant something. Someone once told me that grief starts as an intruder and becomes a companion. And I think we see that as we follow our stories. I think social media's taken the, the mental health of people involved with that to a really interesting and sometimes really problematic level. Because as a society, we typically want to assign blame to something, and that usually happens through comments on Facebook or tweets. So I know some people who have talked to us about their loved one's death, you know, um, I interviewed a mother once whose child ran out into the street and died, and it, this was 2012, 2013, so social media was a thing and everything suddenly lighting up with comments about how she should have been watching her child better and what a bad mom she was. And I, I was shocked. Um, in hindsight, I shouldn't have been, but I, I just remember thinking, 
I hope she doesn't read these comments and I'm, I'm not telling her about them. Um, and so I think that has taken the, the mental health aspect to a, a really interesting level. Producer Sarah, executive producer Sarah, how are we doing on time here? We have a couple minutes. Wrap it up. Okay, so we appreciate you, your questions and, and listening to us. I think this is a very interesting class that you have here because it's a topic that a lot of people don't talk about. If they're not in the news business or they're not in a class like this, I think death and dying is something we often try to avoid talking about, and yet it's maybe one of the most impactful things that will ever touch any of our lives. Certainly it affects our jobs on a nearly daily basis. Um, hopefully, if anything else, at least from my point of view, I hope you come away with this understanding that if it bleeds, it leads is not something, it's not, it's not a mantra we have on the wall. Um, it's not something that we set out to do because more people are going to watch and it's going to make us lots of money. Um, there are sometimes reasons good and sometimes reasons that are not so good that we may cover crime and violence. But in the end, we as journalists approach death and dying as something that's very meaningful, very important, very impactful, and we try to do it as sensitively as we can. And we try to self-evaluate. We're human beings. There are times when we make mistakes and there are times when we are coming at something from one place and then we become educated on a different way we could have approached it. So I think in a lot of cases, there are a lot of us who should probably be taking this class. <laughs> we're, we're not perfect, but we're trying. Yeah. Um, and criticism is warranted. We understand it. And we just try to you know, explain where we're coming from. And maybe if you don't want to see so much of that on the news, maybe you can write in. Tell them you don't want or to. Or click on the stories that do not involve that as That's well. That's right. That's right. Well, thank you all so much. Uh, this was really a treat um, to get your perspective and really eye-opening. You know, I hate teaching right from the textbook that says, if it bleeds, it leads, right? And mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate your perspective. And you touched on so many things that we are going to be covering, as well as things that we have already covered. And that's just really great. I'll be able to refer back to, to the things that you said. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really thank appreciate you. it. Okay, so what did you guys think of that whole experience? We didn't seem to lose too many of the students in there. I didn't see anyone nodding off. They seemed like they were no engaged and listening. on the desk or anything like that. No, it seemed like they were engaged. It also made me think about, their questions were insightful. So, you know, when we're talking about what kind of words do we use? Do we try to soften it by saying passed away instead of death or dead? And what is the right way to do that? Is there a right way to do that? There are so many things that I think we're just used to doing and it's a good practice to go back and wonder, okay, but is that the best way to do things? And sometimes these speaking engagement, these Q&As can really trigger that thought process. Right. A little self-reflection is not a bad thing. And I think that we can all handle criticism of the industry, we could dole out criticism ourselves. I think there's a lot of debate that can be had here about what we're covering and what we're not covering at the station and what that balance is. And I think we could talk for days about this with all of our coworkers and everybody would have very different opinions. It made me think this was an engineering school and it was a psychology class, but this could very well be and probably ought to be the kind of at least one class conversation that journalism students should be having. I, I think everyone in the field should be discussing this because how we approach death and dying, how we approach grieving families, what we cover and what we don't cover, those are critical aspects of what we do. And yet how often do we actually sit back and have these conversations? 
Well, that's it for this episode of Open Record. Thanks for listening. We'd also like to thank the people behind the scenes making the podcast happen. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, and executive producer Sarah Smith. Thanks, Sarah. If you enjoy listening, please let us know. You can leave a review in Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to check out Fox 6's other podcast, Definitely Milwaukee with Carl Deffenbaugh. If you want more Open Record, just head to our website, fox6now.com. 